it's always kind of funny when uh, you have to wake up at like 4.30 in the morning as a pastor and figure out, are we actually gonna meet today? And there's never a perfect call, just so you know. There's like, I could choose one way and we end up doing something else, but uh, just felt like we could make it happen today. And I'm really truthfully glad that you're here. I'm really, like Brandon said, I'm glad you're here safely. I'm glad that you're here in one piece. I'm glad that you're here with your families that you intended to leave with. I'm glad that you're here this morning. And uh, just as a way, so many of you serve and are on teams across our church. Just wanna say a couple quick things about that before we jump into today's message. Uh, number one, if you don't feel safe to come to church, there is no mandatory, obligatory thing from us that means you have to be here. I just wanna make sure you have the permission to do that. If you feel unsafe and you're like, I don't wanna be on the road, that is okay, especially if you're serving, just let us know. But again, I'm really glad that you are here. And I was telling the team as we were praying earlier, there was such a big part of me that was like, I really hope we don't have to cancel. I hope that we've got power and heat and all the necessary things, enough salt to make the, the walkway at least sustainable for a couple hours. And uh, because I just believe that what God is about to say to us in his word is very significant. It's very important. And there's some messages that kind of sit with you for a couple of weeks. And this one felt like that. I was like, man, I cannot wait to get to week three. And here we are. So I'm really glad that you're with us. And it's funny because you're walking into a school every time we meet for church and the church is you, it's not a building. And as we walk into school, I have memories of growing up in my school years. Anyone else, as you walk through and kind of see the classrooms, you're like, I remember what it was like to be in fifth grade. I remember what it was like to be riddled with acne and have no girl like me. I don't, I don't know, maybe, maybe that was just me uh, based on your reaction. That could have just been my personal experience. But as I think about high school as well, I mean, this building we're in is K through, uh, both campuses are K through 12. And I think about just the fact that uh, when I was in high school, it was my sophomore year that really defined how I thought about faith. See, I grew up in a Christian home. I understood the Bible for the most part. I was a part of church. I even served as a high school student in my church. But what I didn't have, what I never had encountered until my sophomore year of high school is a kid that sat behind me, his name, sat behind me in English class named Joey. Now, my brother's Joey, and this is a different one. But I was sitting uh, in, in sophomore English class, and uh, I don't remember if I was reading my Bible or what I was doing. It was some kind of break. And he said, you don't really believe that stuff, do you? And I was kind of like, uh, I think I do. <laughs> I'm not sure. I've never really critically thought about, do I actually? He's like, because I don't believe that stuff. I'm an atheist. And I was like, quick, you didn't have Google at my fingertips. I was like, I gotta make sure I actually know what atheist means. Like I just, I grew up in West Michigan. I grew up in like rural Caledonia. Everybody I knew was a Christian and all of their friends were also Christians. Maybe that is similar to your experience, but that was the first time I ever encountered someone who vehemently disagreed with the belief that God exists. And that was what an atheist would be defined as. And I started ruminating on the question even a couple weeks ago leading up to today. Do you think atheism is a threat to Christianity today? Like people that actually do not believe in God have a hard stance that they've got scientific or logical reasons for not believing that, that a creator, that, that a universal God exists. Now I think about that question and my immediate answer is, well, yeah, that would be kind of a, threat to Christianity today. There's people out there that don't believe in God. Well, what about that? But real atheists only make up about 
2.4% of the world population when it comes to religion, too, which is ironic. But 2.4% of people, when you ask them about religious views, would say, yeah, I'm an atheist around the world. Now, I don't think that 2.4% are really a threat to Christianity today. What about you? I don't really think that they're the biggest threat to Christianity in our world, to, to people really having a life with Jesus. But I think the kind of atheism that actually is a threat to Christianity is something that Craig Groeschel a couple of years ago coined as practical atheism. The idea that there are people in our world, and maybe you know some of these people, maybe you've been one of these people, who say they believe in God, yet their life is absolutely unchanged by him who claim I'm a Christian, but everything in their life besides one hour on Sunday morning doesn't look anything like someone who really follows Jesus unfiltered. And I think that can be a very real threat to Christianity growing and to Jesus being experienced around the world, even by unreached people groups. And it's easy for us to look at our world and to look at people like that, maybe practical atheists or just people we work alongside or go to school with. And it's like, man, how are they so dense? How are they so not changed? Like how, how can they live in a culture in which Christianity is accessible? They don't have to sneak and hide to get to church. They have access to like a bazillion churches on their drive to whatever house they live in. Like they have tons of options, and it's tempting to judge the world for being unchanged, to look at other people and say, well, why isn't your life together? Why are you still living out these horrible, destructive life patterns? Why are you still an alcoholic? Why is your marriage still a wreck? Like, don't you get it? And I think part of us always wrestles with the fact that we're also a little bit like that, that there's parts of us that are not changed yet, that there's areas of our life that are not fully surrendered yet. There's areas of our life in which we still fall into sin and fall into destructive patterns, fall into things that we know are not God's best for our lives. And it's very easy to wrestle with that. And so some of us in result, we just quit faith. Wow, that stuff obviously doesn't work. And I've had friends that have said something probably similar to your friends, like, well, I tried it, nothing changed. I've been to church enough and nothing really made a difference. My marriage still fell apart. I'm still struggling financially. I'm still sick. I don't understand why you believe that this is true. Some of us just pack up and find another church or another experience or another gathering that suits our preferences better. Some of us continue to live in apathy, just kind of sitting there and going through motions, showing up, but there's no real change in us. As we journey through Mark, Jesus has a lot to say about people just like you and me. And it's a gift that you're here. It's a gift that you plowed through your driveway and made it because I believe that you're here for a reason, that Jesus actually has something to say to you and even to me this morning. So with that said, let's jump right into Mark 2. We picked up at the end of chapter one, Lindsay led us beautifully just through a couple different moments and stories in Jesus's life. And I wanna pick up where she left off in Mark 2, verse one. See, we're journeying through the gospel of Mark in this series called Jesus Unfiltered. And here's what, the, the, what Mark writes in his gospel right after Jesus heals a man with leprosy. Mark 2, verse one. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Pause. If someone healed your best friend, word is going to spread about that. Now, this is pre-social media, so this is all total word of mouth marketing here. Like, 
If you're in sales, you know word of mouth is the best marketing tactic you have. Well, that's what Jesus leveraged. He would heal people and they would go all over the place, sometimes uh, many, many miles just to let people know about what he had done for them. Verse two, they gathered in such large numbers, there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. What was the word? We covered this in week one. The word was repent and believe in the gospel. Be baptized. Let your life be surrendered to me. The kingdom of God, what what God had promised his people has finally arrived on the scene. Verse three. So some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Pause. This is a weird scene. Now, you may be a construction nut. You may love everything DIY. I'm willing to bet that all the projects combined have never been as weird as tearing through someone's roof in order to drop a paralytic into the room. Am I, I think I'm right on that. No one said I've done that. Like that is a very unique thing, but picture the scene. Jesus is probably either around a table or he's in the middle of this small first century Israel house, probably made of baked mud and clay. It's very warm. And they're in there sweating, listening to this rabbi teach things they've never heard before. And they know that he's actually healed people before as well. Maybe some of their neighbors had been blind and Jesus had healed them. Maybe it was their best friend that they walked by on their way to work every day who had leprosy, who was cast out of the temple, who didn't belong in society. And Jesus had come to that guy and healed him. And so they're gathering. It says the whole crowd. It's like the whole city just was packing into this small confined area, this courtyard and this inner room of the house. And it's in the middle of that teaching that Jesus feels a little dust fall onto his hair. And then they start to look up and it's like, what is going on? If, if you're like an on the fence Christian, you're not sure. If you're an atheist, you're like, oh, oh my goodness, Jesus said something about him, like bringing the kingdom of God back. And here it is, like this hole through the roof, the light is bursting through. There would have been no electricity. So it would have illuminated this entire room in a very different way than how it previously was. The debris is falling, the drywall is in people's mouths and they're sitting there like, What is happening in this scene? Now, look what happens next in verse five. When Jesus saw their, say this word with me, when Jesus saw their faith, he he said back to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Was that really what the paralytic was even coming for? I don't know. It doesn't say. Mark doesn't specify his reasons for coming. He just said that, He was being lowered through this roof and Jesus either all the way down or on the way is like, hey, by the way, your sins are forgiven. He's like, what? Because look what happens in the rest of the story, verse six. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves. It doesn't say they said anything. It said that these teachers, these religious people, these Bible-believing, tithing well-behaved citizens of Jerusalem, of Capernaum, were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? That meaning, son, your sins are forgiven. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
Like only God can do that. Why is this rabbi from Nazareth, this no-name town, we're not even sure where this guy came from. He's not only saying he can heal people and we're seeing it happen, he's also forgiving sin. Verse eight, immediately Jesus knew. You ever feel something like that? You just know intuition, it's like in your gut. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Why are you thinking these things? Now, immediately you can picture and you can have access to the rest of the story. But what I would think would happen if I'm a reader of Mark for the very first time, and maybe you are, I would think, okay, Jesus is clearly threatening the Pharisees here. He's clearly threatening these teachers of the law who had the market on religious culture. They were the guys, you went to them. They were the televangelists you trusted. They were the people that you followed. They were the the reputable community pastor who when you really needed something, you went to them. And this rabbi from Nazareth who's teaching wild things, who's allowing people to break through other strangers' houses in order to get healing and forgiveness, he, he is knowing that there's something going on deep in their hearts. And I would think if I'm a reader, well, obviously Jesus probably stopped after this, right? Like he probably just moved on. He's like, all right, I'm not gonna do that crazy stuff. Maybe I'll find a new town. But that's the opposite of what happens. Three more stories unfold in Mark 2. Number one, he goes and hangs out with Levi, a tax collector. My mom is a CPA, so I'm not gonna diss the IRS online right now. But uh, they wouldn't be my favorite people to hang around because I feel like they take my money, if I'm just being honest. I don't know about you. Uh, My mom would totally disagree with me. But in the first century, not only were they just kind of like shady characters, they literally stole from people. They would always take a cut. So picture the IRS, you find out 20 years later, I only need to pay them half of what I had and the rest was going to IRS personal employees. That would really make you angry and make me very righteously angry as well. I would be mad. And Jesus invites this guy named Levi, a tax collector, a cheater, a burglar, if you will, of people's money, and he gets other sinners, other prostitutes, other broken people, other people that would have not have been welcomed in the, the church at the time, and he says, let's have a meal together. Let's sit down. Let's, let's break bread. Let's... Let's get to know one another. He does that, strike one. Pharisees, not a big fan of that. Those are not the people you associate with. The next story in Mark 2 is Jesus takes his disciples and they decide we're hungry, we're gonna eat on the Sabbath. Now, as you scale back to Jewish tradition, you don't eat on the Sabbath, you fast. Jesus and disciples are like, well, we're kind of hungry. I feel like we should eat something on the way. And so they go through and they pick some grain and they start eating. The third story that we see right towards the end of two going into chapter three of the gospel of Mark is Jesus heals somebody on the Sabbath. A man is in the the courtyards and has kind of a withered hand. It's shriveled up. He can't use it. He can't really work. And Jesus says, I'm gonna heal you. Stretches out his hand. The guy's immediately healed on the Sabbath. Another thing you don't do in Jewish tradition, you don't heal on the Sabbath. You don't work. Except for Jesus, it wasn't work. It just was like, I feel like I wanna heal this person and he heals him. He does the opposite. And four different times in Mark 2, the Pharisees ask, why are you doing this? Why are you healing this person? 
Why are you teaching these things? Why are you eating on the Sabbath? Why are you teaching uh, radical things that really are counterintuitive to everything that we've taught up until this point? And Jesus is constantly threatening the Pharisees' religious control. He's really threatening their safety. They, they had the, the corner on the market. They were keeping the status quo. And Jesus says, I'm not really concerned about other, any of those things. Why would Jesus do that? Because for the Pharisees, either the kingdom of God had come and Jesus was legit, and he really was who he said he was, or this rabbi from Nazareth is off his rocker. He's messed up, and we need to get rid of him as quickly as possible. But the answer is in Mark 2, 21. If you have a Bible or you've got a device open with it, it won't be on the screen, but this is what Jesus says. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Two kind of cultural metaphors that basically meant the same thing. Jesus was saying right here, I'm not concerned with the status quo. I'm actually doing something new. The kingdom of God is not gonna be how you expect it. I'm doing something brand new. Here's what's true. And this is true for us today, just as it, must, as it was for those disciples and the listeners and those who were yet to be healed. Religion's primary concern is with the status quo. It's making sure that everything stays in line, but that's not Jesus's primary concern. Jesus's primary concern is actually the heart. It's what happens on the inside. It's the interior you. It's the you that when you lay in bed at night that you know is the real you. The things you wrestle with, the broken patterns, that's the heart. The areas of your life you wish you could change, but you feel powerless to change them. That is the, the area of life that Jesus came to heal, to, to be concerned about. And it frustrated the Pharisees because he always was doing things that, that messed up their status quo, that messed up their system. Because his primary concern was the heart. He didn't always care about the system. He said, I actually came to fulfill the law and prophets. I'm showing you the very best way. But the Pharisees didn't like that and for good reason. And Jesus always was doing things. I just think this is funny. And Mark, you're gonna see this over and over again. Jesus always did things out of order. In Jewish tradition, the, the process, the, the status quo was you got healed physically and then you were forgiven of your sin. Once you got your outside defects fixed, once your hand was, was better, once you could walk again, once you were cured of leprosy, then you could be forgiven. God would forgive you. But look what, do you remember what Jesus just did in the, in the paralytic story? What's the first thing he says? You're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And then he goes on to heal the paralytic. The guy gets off his mat and walks home. He does things out of order because Jesus is not concerned with status quo. He is concerned with the heart. Uh, if you have a, a really close friendship in this room or you have a, a coworker who you're close with or maybe you've got a spouse or girlfriend or fiance right now, uh, there's probably arguments that you bring up over and over again. Am I, Am I alone in this? Anyone else? There's running arguments that you, I saw one. Okay, I'm just making sure it's snow day. I just want to make sure you're still awake out there. 
Uh, it's funny because there's always these arguments Lindsay and I seem to come back to. Uh, the argument that we've come back to recently as winter has fallen upon us in the most ugly of ways is should you get regular car washes or not? Have anyone had this conversation? I, I think since we've been married, we talk about this every single winter because her logic is valid and she's a smart person and she's thinking about the budget of all of this. She's saying, well, John, it doesn't make sense to get a car wash because you know it's gonna rain the next day going to be dirty or you got a long drive. Why would you get a car wash when you have to drive across the state? It's going to get dirty. And in my head, I said, that's exactly why you get a car wash because I want to feel good when I'm driving my 2005 RAV4 with 186 beautiful thousand miles on it. I want it to look good at least. Uh, and so we have this, in, this internal debate in our marriage. Maybe you have things like this. This kind of illustrates though, if the, if the religious people were primarily concerned with status quo, they would be okay with car washes, even if their engine was busted. But Jesus is not concerned with the outside. He is to some degree, but, but deciding that we're not gonna follow Jesus and let him change our heart is kind of like getting a car wash when your car is about to die at the end of that. This doesn't make sense. Like you should fix your engine. You should make sure your car actually runs before you invest in polishing and waxing the tires and making sure all the dirt is scrubbed off perfectly. It just wouldn't make sense. And yet the Pharisees teaches the law and I would dare say some of us decide we're just gonna be content with car washes even if our car's breaking down. We're gonna keep going to church, keep serving, keep doing nice things. But we know that internally our hearts are corrupt and broken and in need of replacement and need of surgery. And that's why Jesus was so adamant with the Pharisees. He was always talking about their hearts. What was their motive? What was their intent? If you skip down to chapter three, and this is the last passage I wanna talk about. In chapter three, verse one, this is what Mark writes. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. We just talked about this. Some of them, talking about the teachers of the law, Pharisees, we're looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. See, they've had it, they're frustrated. They can't wait to take him out of the picture. They don't wanna deal with him challenging the status quo. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And look what Jesus does in verse three. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them a question, which is lawful on the Sabbath, do good, do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. So he looked around at them in anger. This is Jesus. And deeply distressed at their stubborn, read it with me if you have it, hearts. At their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He, he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Friends, we are three chapters into 16 chapters and he's already having death plots against him, against his work, against who he is. He was that challenging because the paralytic didn't follow religious protocol. They burst through the thing. He forgives sin. He heals him. He walks off. The disciples are eating on the Sabbath. They're watching Jesus heal on the Sabbath. They're ditching the religious status quo and they're concerned with the heart just as much as Jesus became concerned with the heart. Here's why I think Jesus is so adamant about the heart. And you and I deep down know this, even if we deny it in our lives, you won't change until your heart changes. That's a hard truth. 
I know Christians who have followed Jesus for decades who don't fully grasp that truth. You won't change until your heart changes. And this idea was not new for Jesus. This was not new for God's people. See, the prophet Ezekiel, way back in Ezekiel, you can read it in chapter 36. I would encourage you to read it later on today even. As you read through that chapter of scripture, God is telling his people, you can't really follow me until you have a new heart. Until your heart of stone is replaced with the heart of flesh. See, Jesus is not concerned with the status quo. He's not concerned as much with the external as much as he cares about what's going on in your heart. I don't know if you've ever gotten a phone call that's really changed your life. Maybe it was a diagnosis. Maybe it was a, a broken relationship. Maybe it was a kid who finally called back. Back a couple weeks before Thanksgiving, I actually got a call that really did change the trajectory of my life. I was about to walk into a meeting. It was a normal Tuesday morning. It was just about 10 o'clock and had my teaching team meeting. We went through the sermon for that week and the day was going great. And my mom called, which is not unusual for me. We talk at least once or twice a week. And so she called me. Um, and the first time I didn't pick up, I was like, I'm about to go in this meeting. I'm not sure if I should. She called me again. So I said, hey, uh, before I jump in this meeting, I'm just gonna take this phone call real quick. I, I pick up the phone and I say, hey, mom. And it's quiet. You know the kind of pregnant pause that you know something is very wrong? My mom was on the other side of the phone. I just hear her start to cry. I'm like, this is not normal. And I could hear through broken words and her sobbing, she said, your dad is in the middle of having a heart attack. I'm sitting there, I'm powerless. I'm three and a half hours away. I don't know what to do. I've never experienced this. Just sitting there listening to her cry. Finally, I said, where are you? She said, I'm about an hour away from the hospital that he's at and I need to get there. And I said, okay, hang up. I will call our siblings. I'll let our family know, inform people. You just focus on driving. I said, at this point, that is the most important thing you can do. I came to find out later my dad was about two exits away from this particular ER and experienced a widow-maker heart attack. The doctor later would say, you had about one in three chance of actually living to make it to the hospital in the first place. And that rattled me, like it would anybody, right? <laughs> that rattled me. But I thought about the gravity of that situation. If my dad, instead of going into immediate surgery and getting a stent put in, invasive having three months of cardio rehab, finally getting to go back to work, having diet restriction to all the things. I think about if, if that didn't happen, instead the doctor said, what are you experiencing? He says, heart pain. He's like, oh, no worries, here's some aspirin. Let me just give you some of that. You'll feel a little bit better and maybe it'll go away. And my dad even said on the phone a couple weeks later, he's like, if, if they had told me something like that, I probably would have taken the meds and thought it must just be a tight chest and gone about my day and I could have died later on. But that is exactly the primary difference between what religion and tradition has against Jesus. See, religion is concerned with just make sure you're feeling all right. Just make it through. Eventually, if you're nice enough or good enough, you'll make it to heaven, you will. But Jesus says, I'm concerned with the heart. It's gonna be painful I'm gonna have to change some things. I'm gonna have to restructure. You're, not, you're gonna have to lay in bed for a little bit. 
but it's, it's gonna be worth it. You're gonna be a different person because Jesus understands we won't change until our heart changes. We don't need aspirin. We need heart surgery. We don't need just a better and new and improved version of our own lives. We need Jesus to come in and replace our lives with his life. So today, friends, where do you need life to really change? Where do you need heart surgery? What's the area of your life that as you walk out of this room, you desperately, maybe you've prayed about it. Maybe other people are even in on that. You need it to change because there's significant markers in all of our lives in which we have the decision to let Jesus change our hearts or just keep the status quo as it is. I, I hear this with baptism. Some people, you, you know, when baptism comes up, you're like, oh, I know I need to do that. I know, I know that's my next step, but the water's too cold, <laughs> right? Or, well, I'm wearing my good shirt today. I can't get baptized today. Or my great aunt Susie from West Virginia is not here yet. I can't, she's got to take pictures. How am I going to get baptized? That's exactly the kind of arguments the Pharisees would bring to Jesus. He says, I, I'm not concerned with all of that. I'm concerned with the heart. And when you have a heart change, you obey immediately. That you just take the steps that Jesus is calling you to take. The same is true if you have a broken relationship today. Maybe that's a marriage, a friendship, a boss or an employee. And today you know that you need to make that right. See, religion would be, would be okay. Hey, as long as you're not rocking the boat, as long as they're not like fists up every time you walk in the office and you just kind of know they're mad, but you pass by their cubicle and everything's okay. Religion would be okay with that. That's the status quo. No one's gonna know any better. But Jesus says, my primary concern is the heart, which means you go to them immediately. You resolve the conflict. You, you wade into a little bit of tension a little bit of awkwardness. You have the difficult conversation because that's what disciples of Jesus do. Maybe for you, you're asking questions about faith and salvation is that step. And you're sitting there and you're like, yeah, but I've got to get my life together. I've got to have all my questions answered. But John, you don't understand what I've done or who I am or the thoughts I have when I put my head on the pillow and I, you don't know the kind of person I am. And religion would be concerned with all of that because you have to clean yourself up. You've got to be healed and then you're forgiven. But Jesus says, no, no, no. The order doesn't even frankly matter to me. He says, I'm concerned with the heart. I've come to make you a new creation. I've come to, to give you a life that you can't earn or achieve on your own. So what does God wanna do in your heart this year? What does God wanna do in our church's heart this year? What does God wanna do in my heart this year? Because Jesus' primary concern is not keeping us in check, not just keeping us floating along life and letting everything be exactly the same when we have a heart attack going on. He wants to replace our heart and make us new people and change us. And so we're gonna take a moment just to pray together. We're gonna, we're gonna surrender some things to Jesus. We're gonna take some, some extended time here in just a second to pray and to worship and reflect because the truth is you and I could hear what Jesus is teaching about in Mark 2 and we could leave and we could say, man, that was interesting. Or wow, wasn't that a great teaching? <laughs> Maybe even not that, but there's wow, that was a, I'm glad I went to church today. Or we could let Jesus begin to do a work in our hearts and change what is most deeply broken about us. And, and friends, things start to change when our hearts change. Let's pray together. Jesus, I know that there are people in this room 
There's friends and family who aren't in this room. In fact, there's empty seats near us that we are asking you to fill with people who are far from you in our personal lives, at our work, at our schools, that need heart changes, that need you to come in and yes, it will be invasive. Yes, it will hurt. Yes, there will be rehab. But you'll do a deeper work in us. Because you're concerned with the heart. You wanna change us from the inside out. You really do desire to give us a brand new life. And to that end, we just declare our dependence on you, our need for you. There's no ladder to climb. There's no goals to achieve. There's no spiritual mile marker we need to hit before you can do the heart work in us. So God, we just surrender our lives back to you. Maybe today before I just ask Jesus, maybe today with just the quietness of this moment as you reflect in your own soul, you just know that that's the kind of work you need Jesus to do. And maybe for the first time you're making that decision to open up to him. Maybe you've walked with God for a long time. I would encourage you because I wanna pray directly and specifically over you right now. If that's you, you just know that's a heart thing. I need, I need heart surgery. I need God to do a new work in me this year. Would you just throw your hand up real quick? I wanna pray directly for you in this moment. If you just know that's the kind of work I need, it's something much deeper. I don't wanna just be concerned with the status quo. I need a heart change. If that's you, just throw your hand up real quick. I wanna pray for you. So Jesus, I pray as we just surrender our lives back to you, as we ask for you to do the deeper work in us, God, I just pray that you'd not only give us boldness to let you in, but you'd give us courage for when that transformation, that change is hard. And I thank you right now that as all of us are gathered here, that we are not here by accident. That you desire to meet with us and to speak to us and ultimately to change us into your image. I just pray God that even now in this group of people, as we've gathered together, as we've opened your word, as we're trying our best to follow you in this life, God, I pray that you'd help us, every single one of us, to truly build our lives on the things that will last. Because if we're honest, there's no other name that's really worthy of that. There's no other name that can really change us. There's no other thing to turn to. You are the door and we wanna walk into that. So God, we surrender our lives to you. Ask that you would do that deeper work. In Jesus' name, amen.